Hello, miserable bitches. We are back with another episode. Yes, we are. My name is Cody. Are you trying to change it? Yeah. My name is Emily. And before we get started, make sure you leave your manners at the door. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Misery Manor. I can usually, like, know exactly what you're going to say, and you threw me off. I know, because I saw you mouthing it, and I was like, bitch, let's let's throw you for a little uh, spin. Okay. Um. So, really cool thing. So, this weekend, I told you a little bit about it, but this weekend, we went back to Beaumont because my sister got married. Mm-hmm. And well, two things now that I'm thinking about it, where she got married. Um, oh, yeah. One of my friends, though, told me that it used to be a, a morgue, like Bruce Arts oh. Mortuary, and that there has been like signs of like ghosts. I didn't know it while we were there because it's been like, you know, redone and all that. But I'm like, I wish I would have known that. I'd have been ghost hunting with a Ouija board in the back. But besides that, Josh and I stayed um, at the Elegante Hotel. Now, it sounds like it would be a beautiful Super host. fancy. And the pictures online look gorgeous. But when we got there, I was like, eh, 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 eh. don't know what that sound was. But I was like, oh, this is not what y'all fucking demonstrated. Anyways, that's besides the point. So I'm there and I'm thinking, okay, the Elegante Hotel, why does that sound so familiar? And then I think, I, I think, I remember that my favorite murderer did a case shout out to karen and georgia did a case over the elegante hotel this murder that happened so did I look, they call it the elegante i think at one point she called it the elegant because that's what most right people would call it so but it has an e and like a little yeah whatever um so i look it up and so there was a murder this like it, it's solved now but it went unsolved for a long long time there's a lot of like spins and stuff that happened in it so me and Josh were laying there and I was like, I'm going to go look it up. Like, we're going to go. So he looks it up and it happened in room 348, which is on the other side of the hotel where we were. Uh-huh. Well, so after the wedding, like the next day we were leaving, I was like, I have to go take a picture by that room because I want to do the case now that I've been there. Is that what we're doing today? No. Oh. I need more time. So we get to the other part of the hotel and it just so happened that there was a cleaning lady cleaning that room with yeah. the door wide open. You told me that. Yeah. And so I was like, damn it, I'm not going to get a picture. Well, Josh was like, give me your phone. And he starts taking pictures of like inside of it. Like the cleaning lady just like walked away. So he's like snapping all these photos of inside of it. We took pictures of like the stairwell that went up there because I know that was significant in the case too. So I have a bunch of photos of like- Wait. Does that have to do with the trash chute? I don't know, because I haven't investigated or I haven't looked into it that much. I don't really remember, but I just know that there are certain parts within the hotel okay. that I took photos of. So like when I'm telling you the story, I can show you the photos of it. But I was like, oh my gosh, out of all of the rooms here, that's she's cleaning, cleaning, cleaning the it. one room. And As was, you were leaving. Yeah. So I was we were like taking photos of, of it inside and it was it was really cool. So anyway, stay tuned for that one because I'm definitely going to cover that case soon. Um, but yeah, it just was kind of cool to be there. 
Um, was there still blood inside? There actually was. The body still was there. Oh, that's good. Yeah, like 40 years later. <laughs> so, okay. So before I get into this um, case, shout out to our new patron. We have Debbie over at True Crime University, which is a podcast. I don't know if it's on Spotify, but I do know for a fact it's on Apple Podcasts. Um, she's a uh, Patreon she has a great, great, great podcast. You should go check it out. So on her show, she dives into true crime cases, mm -hmm. um, but she concentrates on the psychology of criminal behavior and offender uh, profiling. Okay. So she covers some amazing cases. Um, go check her out and show her some love, guys. It is True Crime University on Apple Podcast. And she like calls, like when she does her podcast, she like calls her listeners like a classroom, like her students. Oh, yeah. And like she's like university. the professor. I love it. Oh, well, thank you, Debbie. Yeah, thanks, Debbie Deb. And if you want to be a Patreon, we just recorded a really cool episode. Um, it's about the bizarre road trip of a missing family in Australia. So we're going to be uploading that this week. Um, so if you want access to that exclusive episode, as well as all of our other ones, please come check us out because you're not only supporting us like in our, in our podcast, but you're helping us to continue to do what we love best. And that's, you know, give amazing episodes for you all. It helps us get new mics when we need it. Um, hopefully one day we won't be in this closet recording. I kind of like whatever happened to our soundproofing thing. Um, they came in and they were mm, about three fourths the size that it looked like on the <laughs> internet. So I'm going to have to, you know, re order those. But for now, these clothes will work just fine. But yeah, guys, your Patreon support really helps us. We're able to buy um, fun you know, stickers, fun stickers, which Emily will talk about. Oh, I just I got some new stickers with like one of our miserable bitches tagline. So yeah. we'll send those out to our new patties. Yeah, our new Patreons will be getting those in the mail soon. It's really cool. It's like a retro like pink and blue color. And it says, hey, miserable bitches on it. And it's like in the shape of a heart. So. We'll be sending those and some other stuff in the mail to all of our new Patreons. So thanks again, guys, for being a Patreon, too. And if you want to be a Patreon, like I say every time, go to our Instagram at Misery Manor Podcast, and you can find it in the bio. Or just look below in the show notes. I put it there, the link to it as well. Right. So before I get started on this case, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, eat and eat chocolate. All right, cool. Let's get into this case so you can eat, big girl. So on this week's episode, we are going to be discussing... Oh my God, this is the first time I haven't told you how to I know. We are going to be discussing the Texarkana Phantom Murders or the Moonlight Murders. Have you heard of this? Yes. Oh. Are okay. they boring? No. Bitch, do I do boring episodes? No. <laughs> so this occurred in the 1940s. I watched the movie not that long ago. Yeah, I love it. The trumpet scene is... Um, I don't know about that. That's like the most famous scene oh, in the movie where oh. he kills him with the trumpet. And he's like, bloop, 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 bloop. Well, that didn't happen in real life. No, no. Oh, it's I'm just... thinking of a documentary. You watched a movie. Yeah. Oh, no, uh, something at sundown. Yeah, no, that didn't happen in here. So I'm giving you the rural story. There's no trumpets here. So just as background, though, Texarkana is a city in Bowie County, Texas, in the Arc La Tex region. So Texarkana is located approximately 180 miles from Dallas and sits on the Texas-Arkansas border 
hence the name Texarkana. Right. So at the time of this case, the population of Texarkana was around 15,000, give or take a few. I saw anywhere from like 11,000 to 15,000, so somewhere around there. And today it's around 36,000. So the Texarkana phantom murders is unsolved, but after I go through the murders, I'm going to end with some of the theories as to who the fuck this killer might be. The Zodiac Killer? Could be, honey. So let's get into the case. So on February 22nd, 1946, in the town of Texarkana, Jimmy Hollis, who was 25, and Mary Jean LeRae, who was 19, enjoyed a date to the movies. And they went to the Kissing Rock. After they ate, did they really? I don't know. The Kissing Rock was from Pretty Little Liars, I think. I don't Girl, know. I don't know. All these movies. So after they ate, they enjoyed the movies, they hung out, they decided to head back home and began driving to Mary Jean's house. On the way, they stopped their car on a quiet, unpaved road about 300 feet away from some houses in a residential neighborhood. So they left the movies pulled over so i'm not sure what they pulled over to do probably make out but i'll leave that up to your imagination i was getting some mm, i don't Ew. know i don't think they did that back then i think they were probably trying to look at the solar stars. the the uh, solar system they the stars with what binoculars so after about 10 minutes a man walked up wearing a mask that resembled a pillowcase and it had holes cut out for the eyes and the mouth so as mary jean would later relate so quote he wore a white mask over his head with cut out places for his eyes and his mouth he pointed a flashlight and a pistol at us he came up on the driver's side of the car and told jimmy something like i don't want to kill you fella so do what i say both Jimmy and Mary Jean were ordered out of the driver's side door, and then the man ordered Jimmy, quote, take off your goddamn britches. Ew. So Don't I, call them that. So after Jimmy did what he was told, the unknown man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. So pistol whipped him. So Mary Jean later told investigators that the noise from the beating was so loud that she initially thought that Jimmy had been shot but it was actually just the sound of his skull cracking <gasps> and breaking. So needless to say, because of these blows to the head, Jimmy laid on the ground unconscious. Do you think he told him to pull his pants down because like then he couldn't run? Like his jeans would be down to his ankles, probably. Or did he want to see his PP? I don't think he wanted to see his TT. I think it. Ooh. So thinking the masked man wanted to rob them, Mary Jean showed him Jimmy's wallet to prove that they had no money. She was like, look, if you want money, we don't have it. Please let us go. We have nothing that you could want. So after pleading and trying to work with the attacker, Mary Jean was struck with a blunt object over and over and over again on her head. So finally, the attacker, after beating her, said, stand up. And when she did, he said, now run, like told her to run. She'd be like discombobulated. So Mary Jean tried to run towards a ditch, but she kept falling. So as she's running towards this ditch, he yelled out and ordered her to run up the road. He was like, no, run up the road. So Mary Jean tried to run as fast as she could, but she was struggling because the girl was wearing high heels because she was on a date. She wanted to look cute. So after running for quite some time, Mary Jean found an old car parked off the road and she was like screaming like, oh, my God, help me, help me, help me. She thought somebody was in the car. However, it was his car. No. When she got to the car, it was completely empty and just abandoned. It could be his car. Could be. 
but I don't think so because she had ran quite a long way. So feeling defeated, she feared that she was running out of options. So before long, she was confronted by the attacker who had caught up to her. And you know what he said? Why are you running? She confused. She was like, you just told me to. Like, I was just doing what you wanted. And then he said, liar, I did not. Oh, your face. And proceeded to knock her down and then began sexually assaulting <gasps> her with the barrel of his gun. Oh, no, ma'am. So, yeah. Leave that up to the imagination. So after the assault, Mary Jean fled on foot. So she ran half a mile to a nearby house. So Mary Jean banged on the door. She was like, help me, help me, help me, help me. And when they answered, they immediately brought her into the home and called for the police. Meanwhile, Jimmy finally regained consciousness and was able to get to his feet. And he flagged down a passing motorist who called the police immediately. So within 30 minutes... Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the masked attacker had already vanished into the night and he was nowhere to be seen. So Mary Jean was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound from the beating and Jimmy was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. So... When questioned by the police, Jimmy and Mary Jean gave conflicting reports of their attacker. So Mary Jean claimed that she could see under the mask and that he was a light-skinned African-American. However, Jimmy claimed that it was a white man that was just tan and around 30 years old, but told the police that he could not see any other features due to being blinded by the flashlight and just being in a state of shock. Yeah. Um, So both Mary Jean and Jimmy did agree that the attacker was around six feet. So law enforcement repeatedly challenged Mary Jean's statements and believed after talking to the two, which this part is so weird, they thought that Mary Jean and Jimmy knew the identity of the attacker and were covering for him. They were like, like, no, you know who this person is. You're just covering for them. You You don't want them to get caught. They're like, well, they just, first of all, sexually assaulted me and beat the fuck out of us. Why Why would we cover for this person? But okay. that's what they said in their head. They thought that they were, you know, covering for this person. So you would think that this sort of incident would totally shock the community. However, in the mid-1940s, Texarkana... <laughs> Texarkana was a relatively violent place. So things like murders, robberies, sexual assaults, and other crimes were very common. Because of this, the community did little to nothing about the occurrence, and people just kind of went on their merry way. Until about two months later, there would be a double attack. However, this time, it would be fatal. On the morning of March 24, 1946, authorities found the bodies of 29-year-old Richard L. Griffin and 17-year-old Polly Ann Moore in a 1941 Oldsmobile on what they were known as what it was known as Lover's Lane. So the two had been boyfriend and girlfriend for just about six weeks. So they were new. They was in that butterfly state. Hot and heavy. Hot and heavy, honey. And both had been shot in the back of the head. Oh, God. The two were found by a passing motorist. 
the motorist said he saw the parked car on Lover's Lane and decided to get out and inspect the vehicle. He's like, what the heck is this doing here? Let me see what's in it. So the motorist at first thought that both were just asleep in the car, like perhaps after a night of partying. Yeah. Um, Richard was found between the two front seats on his knees with his head resting on his own hands and his pockets turned inside out as if he had been robbed. Pollyann oh, wow. was found face down in the back seat. There is evidence that suggests that she was placed there after being killed on a blanket just outside of their car. So he had been shot twice while in the car and both had been shot once in the back of the head and both were fully clothed. So a blood-soaked area near the car suggested to police that they had been killed outside of the car and then placed back inside. So blood was found covering the running board and it had flowed through the bottom of the car to the door. To add, a 32 cart cartridge casing was also found, possibly ejected from a pistol wrapped in a blanket to muffle the sound. So there were no footprints around the car. However, it had kind of like stormed that day. The wind was bad. So if there was any footprints after the murder, they had been kind of like washed away or like blown away. Right. So there, though there weren't many clues for authorities to go off of, three days after the killings, at least 50 people had been asked about the murder and over 100 false leads had been investigated. While this attack, ending in the murder of a young couple, turned more heads than the first assault, the community still believed these events to be isolated incidents and had nothing to do with one another. However, that all changed because a second double murder was about to occur. On April 14th, authorities found the bodies of 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker and 16-year-old Paul Martin. The previous night, the two teens had attended a band performance at the Veterans of Foreign Wars Club where Betty Jo played the alto saxophone. They were also seen leaving the dance around 1.30 in the morning. So around 6.30 a.m., Paul's body was found lying on its side by the northern, northern edge of the North Park Road. Blood was found on the other side of the road by the fence. Paul had been shot four times, once through the nose, through the ribs from behind, in the right hand, and through the back of his neck. So Betty Jo's body was found by a search party at about 11.30 a.m. and almost two miles from Paul's body. Her body was behind a tree and lying on its back, but she was fully clothed. It was found that Betty Jo had in fact been raped. Her body was posed with the right hand in the pocket of her buttoned overcoat. Betty Jo had been shot twice, once through the chest and once through the face. So I'm assuming after she was raped, they put her clothes back on. I mean, if they're state, they've already staged one of them. Right. So the weapon that was used was same as the first double murder, which again was a 32 automatic Colt pistol. So this being the third attack in less than two months, now with four pe young people dead, the community was finally paying attention and they were panicked to say the least. So finally, so it took what, four murders for them to finally be alert and want to do something about it. So when these families' husbands and fathers were away for work, women and children would check into hotels in downtown Texarkana just to be protected. 
So other families bought guns. They crafted homemade security systems from their kitchenware and wire around their homes to alert them if there was an intruder coming. So streets, parks, and other areas of the town that were typically busy were deserted and just left all alone. So some people nailed sheets over their windows, some nailed windows down, and others used uh, screen door braces as window guards. So these people were doing anything and everything to like... But a sheet? Sheet? I don't... That That's is, not going to really do anything. I guess they felt... They didn't have curtains? Protected. They were just fucking scared. So the Texarkana Gazette named the attacker the Phantom Killer of Texarkana. Tillman Johnson, one of the lead investigators, said, quote, We were constantly getting calls, mostly at night, about prowlers. People would call about any noise they heard at all. So people were just calling like they heard someone poot. They would call. They heard someone cough. They would call. Like they were just scared. And I've never said the word poot in my entire life. What exactly does it mean? Is it a, it's a fart? Tooting a pooping toot? <laughs> I don't know, but they were calling about anything and everything. So everybody was afraid that they would be the next victim of the phantom killer. So unfortunately, the phantom killer was not done with the attacks. And finally, we have our fifth and final murder. On Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, age 37, and his wife Katie, age 36, were in their home on a 500-acre farm off Highway 67 East, which is almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. Okay. So Wait, how many miles? 10 miles okay. northeast. So Virgil was sitting in his armchair reading the newspaper and listening to the radio when all of a sudden he was shot twice in the back of the head from a closed double window. Hearing the sound of broken glass, his wife Katie came from another room and saw Virgil stand up in like agony and in pain. And then he fell back into his chair. So I guess like, you know. Drive-by shooting? Well, someone shot through their window. Yeah. On their farm. So I don't think it's drive-by because they're on a 500 uh. acre farm. So after realizing that her husband was dead, Katie went to call for help. So the phone line was able to ring twice when all of a sudden the attacker shot her twice in the face, <gasps> like through her mouth. And it actually knocked her teeth out. Well, she yeah. fell to the ground, but miraculously she was not dead. So determined to survive, Katie got up and tried to get a pistol from another room, but she was blinded for a while by her own blood. So as she paused in the hallway, completely blinded, she was rattled with fear when she heard the killer enter her home oh. and could hear the footsteps getting closer and closer to her. So Katie managed to somehow escape out the back door and she ran barefoot across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran to a neighbor who was, his name was A.V. Prater. And uh, as when she got there, all she said was, Virgil's dead, Virgil's dead. And then she went unconscious on the ground. Luckily for Katie, though, the Prater family took her to Michael Mager Hospital, which is now Miller County Health Unit, to be treated for her injuries. Um, while there, Katie was questioned in the operating room by Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, who became head of the investigation. Four days later, Davis talked with Katie again, and she denied a circulating rumor that her husband Virgil had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row and feared being killed. Because that's what they had heard. 
So just as an indication of the fear the Phantom Killer had instilled in the community by this point, 20 to 30 police officers gathered on the Starks farmhouse to investigate to try to get to the bottom of these killings. They were like, enough is enough. We're sending in all of our people and we're going to figure this the fork out. So police tried to gather evidence and interview possible suspects and witnesses. It was said that, quote, people would stand out near the front of their homes and yell at you to identify yourself before you got too close. So like if you went on someone's property, they'd be like, identify yourself. And then if you didn't, they would like shoot at you. Even in the daylight? Uh, yeah, if they didn't recognize who you were. So you had to identify yourself or you would get shot. So the day after the Starks, after Stark's death, the store sold out of locks, guns, ammunition, window shades, and Venetian blinds. Oh. <laughs> Additional items of which sales uh, increased included window sash locks, screen door hooks, night latches and other protective devices also there were ads in all of the newspapers wanting guard dogs so people were looking for dogs that could pose as a guard dog okay so back at the crime scene authorities followed buddy bloody footprints left by the killer that went from the house across the highway where they eventually just lost the trail while this incident worsened the fear of the phantom killer it is possible this killing was done by maybe somebody else so now they're starting to think that maybe this wasn't done by the same person. I don't really think it was done by the same person, but let me keep going. Okay. So here's why they think it was done by somebody else. So the other attacks had targeted people younger than the Starks and had taken place in cars, not homes. In addition, Virgil was shot with a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol, which is a different weapon than the 32 caliber used in all the previous murders of like Betty, Joe, okay. and Paul. So still, this incident was um, included in the Phantom investigation. Authorities were so desperate to find this murderer that they even would go out at night dressing up and acting as young couples in an effort to try to lure in the murderer. So authorities also tried baiting the Phantom Killer by recruiting teenagers to sit as decoys in like parked cars or in parks while officers waited nearby to make an arrest. Also, Officers volunteered as decoys with real partners or posed mannequins all across town. Some of the officers even hid in trees overnight at Spring Lake Park. So there was decoys, there were mannequins, all these people set up to try to find this person. But, but he's probably watching them do all this. Like on the news and stuff, yeah. So although most of the town of Texarkana, Canna, was in great fear of the phantom killer some of the young rebellious teens continued parking on deserted roads hoping to come across the perpetrator so they took it into their own hands to try to find this person so two arkansas state troopers were patrolling a vacant road at night when they came up to a parked car with one of the state uh, when one of the two state troopers approached the car, he noticed a guy and a girl was sitting inside of it. So the trooper introduced himself. He was like, hello, I'm Arkansas State Trooper Johnson. What are you two doing here? Like, are you scared? And scared and frightened, the girl in the car replied, quote, it's a good thing you told me who you are. And she looked down and she was holding <gasps> a pistol at him. But why would they be putting themselves in, in danger? I know. Unless they were waiting for, for a person. Right. Because they said a lot of the teens were trying to find this person by themselves. Or maybe she was him. Right. Well, no, they knew it was a guy. So How on do the... you know she wasn't? Well, she wasn't. 
Oh. <laughs> she wasn't. Sorry. So on the night of May 10th, Texarkana City police officers were alerted to a suspicious car that had been following a school bus. So they chased it for three miles before finally just shooting the tires. Wait, so, at night? At night. Why is there a school bus at like, night in the 40s? I think it was like a, um, after uh, like a football game. They like did, after a football game. They did that in the 40s? Or some school event. It was in the evening. Okay. So once the car uh, swerved off the side of the road, the police got out and arrested a guy named C.J. Lauderdale Jr., who was a high school athlete. Okay. He was questioned at the police station. like he, They were like, why in the world were you following the school bus? And why did you not pull over when you saw the police behind you? And he explained that he was unaware that they were policemen because they were driving in an unmarked car. He just thought it was a regular car. Okay. He also said that he was following the school bus because he was suspicious of a passenger that had entered the bus from a private car and wanted to follow to ensure nothing bad happened or help out if something did. So enough was enough at this point. And on May 12th, authorities made an announcement to, quote, teenage sleuths. And it said, do not get involved in solving this crime and stop taking matters into your own hands. So the authorities encouraged any and everyone to just call the police if they are suspicious of someone or something. And he concluded with, quote, it's a good way to get yourself killed. Well, yeah. So Dr. Anthony LaPala, a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institute in Texarkana, Canna believed that the same person committed all five murders and that the killer was somewhere between in his mid-30s and 50s and was That's... motivated by strong sex drive and sadism. So Dr. Anthony LaPella stated that a person who would commit such crimes was intelligent, clever, and uh, shrewd, and often was not apprehended. So according to LaPella's theories, the killer was not afraid of people, uh, of police activity, but was aware of the increased difficulty of attacking people on vacant roads. So he had shifted his last target to a farmhouse. He said that the killer could be leading a normal life, but was unlikely a veteran and was most likely not a resident of the area, despite his knowledge of it. He stated that the attacks show evidence of deep planning and that the killer works alone and tells no one of his crimes, hence why no one was able to find out. So two months after the murder of the last murder, mm -hmm. the community's fear began to decrease and life started to get back to normal in Texarkana. So to this day, no one was ever found guilty of the murders and it remains unsolved. So before I conclude, I'm just going to get into some of the theories as to who they think this phantom killer could have been. So the first theory, they think it could, could have been a guy um, named H.B. Hennison, but they call him Duty. Uh, okay. Duty, who was a college student who actually confessed to some of the killings in a note left behind after he committed suicide. So according to a newspaper from the day of his death, a sheriff reportedly said that the note read, quote, why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Stark and tried to get Mrs. Stark, but she got away, end quote. So according to Duty's cousin, forensic psychiatrist Dr. John Tennyson, 
Duty had connections to all of the victims after investigation. He was allegedly an usher at the theater where some victims of the attacks had seen movies before their death. Movies. Sound like I said boobies. It before did. Their death. That's why I looked at you. <laughs> he had been at the same high school band as Betty Joe, And according to Dr. Tennyson, one of Duty's friends lived under the same roof as his sis, uh, as Katie's, Katie Stark's sister. It's so, Duty. Duty booty. So 29-year-old Yule Lee Sweeney. So a, is the second person that they yeah. think it could have been, might, might be. So around the time of the attacks, Arkansas State Trooper Max Tackett observed that cars were reported stolen and later found abandoned whenever the phantom killer made an attack. So following this lead, it led police to stake out a downtown parking lot on June 28, 1946, where a stolen car was abandoned. This led to the arrest of 21-year-old Peggy Sweeney, who was the new wife of Yule Lee Sweeney, who we're talking about. So while in custody, Peggy gave many detailed statements explaining how her husband committed the murders of Betty Joe and Paul and admitted that her husband was, in fact, the phantom killer of Texarkana. As the authorities continue to talk to Miss Peggy, descriptions of her own involvement changed from statement to statement that she made. So she would give one, one person this story and then it would change as she was talking to different people. They're like, girl, get your story straight. Like, was she trying to protect her husband? I no, I just think that she couldn't keep her story straight. So on July 23rd, Peggy gave a statement saying that on April 13th, the day before the bodies of Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin were found, she and Yule parked at a Spring Lake Park and drank some beers. According to her statement, Yule left the car saying he had to, quote, take a leak. Peggy said, quote, he was gone from the car for about one hour when I heard something that sounded like two gunshots. It was just getting daylight when he came back to the car and started driving out of the park at a rapid rate of speed. When he came back to the car, I saw that his clothes were wet up to his knees and damp up on his waist, end quote. On July 24th, Peggy gave another statement. In this one, she said Yule had, Yule had said, quote, he was going out to the park to rob someone, end quote. Peggy said that she went with Yule to Paul Martin's car where Yule pointed a gun at the young couple and told them to get out of the car. Peggy said that she refused to search the teenagers, which angered her husband, and he shot Martin in twice. Peggy then allegedly held Betty Joe in place while Yule got in his car. He drove it back, made both girls get into the car, drove west, turned around, and then shot Paul two more times as he had apparently been able to get up and move around after the first two shots. He took Betty Joe into the woods while Peggy waited in the car. When Yule returned, he told Peggy he had to, or he had tried to get some from Betty Joe, but uh, then shot her after she refused to have sex with him. Okay. So while Peggy's story shifted, she told police information that only someone who had been at the scene of the crime would have known. For instance, Peggy mentioned to authorities that Paul's book was thrown. So he had a book with him, was thrown into some bushes. And when they went to go check, there was in fact a book in the bushes. So Yule was arrested at the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station as he arrived back from Atlanta, where he had attempted to sell a stolen car. While his wife was willing to talk in, to investigators, Yule refused to speak to anyone and everyone. 
While Peggy did give statements to investigators, she could not be forced to testify against Yule as they had gotten married just hours before the police had arrested her. So they were newlyweds. And despite all that, she still married him. Yule was taken to Little Rock for a truth serum shot. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. A truth serums. Does it like give you something in your body to make you like. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it, it, it's actually like a, there's a name for the liquid. Right. That, um, or the, whatever they call it. Um, like the serum in it. Yeah. And it, I mean, I think they used it like an MK Ultra and all that kind of stuff. And they okay. used it like in the war and stuff, I think. Oh, okay. I think. Yeah. Maybe. So they gave him this truth serum shot, but he was given too much, what caused, which caused him to faint. So he like passed out. So investigator Tillman Johnson said, quote, I think that if we just had kept him here in Texarkana and just kept questioning him, he would have gotten the truth out of him eventually. We would have gotten the truth out of him eventually, end quote. So Peggy was actually in prison for her own involvement in the car theft, but eventually she was released. Yule was sentenced to life in state prison for being a habitual criminal after the auto theft charge, but was released on parole in 1973 when the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals denied that he didn't have adequate representation on the car theft charge from 1941. So Yule died in a nursing home in Dallas in 1944. And our last person that they thought it was, or main people that they thought it was, was Ralph B. Ballman. So Ralph was a 21-year-old ex-Army Air Force machine gunner claimed to have awoken from a fuge state, which if you don't know, yeah, huge know. state is a sudden, unexpected, temporary loss of personal identity and impulsively travel away from one's home with the inability to recall some or all past events for several weeks. So on the day of the Starks murder, he said that his rifle went missing and he thought that he had done it because he doesn't remember anything. Right. Because he's in this huge state. He said that he heard about a suspect matching his description. And so he just assumed it was him. So he hitchhiked to Los Angeles for fear of getting caught and arrested. On May 23rd, Ralph told Los Angeles police that he thought he might be the phantom killer and said, I'm my own suspect. Think I did it. Okay, no. And it's called sodium penithal. Oh, the truth serum? Yeah, I don't know if I'm saying the second part right, but I knew it was something like that. Yeah. Okay. So police arrested Ralph after this confession, but authorities stated that several parts of the man's story did not add up and were missing some facts. So he was released. And all of his like Good. statements did not match the timeline, and they thought that he was just going through something. And it did come out that after he was discharged from the Air Force, he was discharged for being a, a psychoneurotic. So clearly he was having some uh, mental health. How old was he? I'm not sure, but, oh, 21, 21. Okay. So yeah. He probably had like some type of, well, you said he's had some type of psychosis, but he probably had like um, schizophrenia or something. PTSD, all that good stuff. Well, not good stuff, but all that added. Oh, and I'm sorry, on our, this is our last one. So Earl McSpadden. All these people have very unique names. They are something else. So on May 7th at approximately 6 a.m., the body of Earl Cliff McSpadden was found on the Kansas City Southern Railway, railway track 16 miles north of Texarkana in the town of Ogden. So the body, the body's left arm and leg had been severed by a freight train an hour and a half earlier. The coroner's jury verdict stated, quote, death at the hands of an unknown person. And they believed, quote, 
he was dead before being placed on the railroad tracks. Because of the murder, because the murder is unsolved, locals had speculated that Earl McSpadden was the Phantom's sixth victim. So they thought that this was just the sixth victim that was, you know, caught at a later time. However, a prominent rumor exists claiming that Earl McSpadden was the phantom killer and had committed suicide by jumping in front of a train after police force was getting heavier and heavier. He like thought he was going to get caught, therefore jumped in front of a train. Oh, I was not expecting that. So crazy enough, though, throughout the investigations of the phantom killer, 400 suspects were arrested. There were numerous false confessions investigated by police. In all, there were nine people who confessed to the killing. I will never understand that. But their statements did not agree with the facts. So to this day, the phantom killer of Texarkana remains unsolved. Dun, 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 dun. I I don't even know who. This kind of reminds me of, like, the Axeman killer of New Orleans. Like, all these, like... It reminds me of a Zodiac killer. Yeah, and it's all kind of around the same time, too. Yeah, like couples couples and stuff, yeah. All right, guys. Phantom Killer of Texarkana. If you go there, don't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's as unsafe anymore. Bye. Goodbye.